This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, broadcasting live on Resonance 104.4 FM. Still London's most exciting and energising radio station after 20 years on the airwaves. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and this week we're continuing our mini-series on the cultural impact of the First World War by looking at how artists, writers and filmmakers and architects in Germany responded to the conflict and particularly to their country's defeat, the failed revolution that followed and the declaration of the Weimar Republic that came in its wake. Joining me today to discuss this is Tom Wilkinson. Uh, Tom is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the Warburg Institute and he's also the author of Bricks and Mortals, Ten Great People and the Buildings They Made. Or is it Ten Great Buildings and the People They Made? It's Ten Great Buildings. Hi, Juliet. Thank (laughs) Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, So Tom is also the history editor of the uh, Architectural Review. And yes, Tom, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Um, Before we launch into our conversation... I want to give a quick history of the First World War from a German perspective, which may not be overly familiar to UK listeners. As discussed last week, the long process of German unification ended with the conclusion of the Franco-Prussian War in January 1871, when Otto von Bismarck declared that the victorious Prussia would form a large part of the new German nation. Even without formally including Austria, it was clear that the emergence of Germany would radically change the European balance of power, making it a major threat to France and the UK in the West and Russia in the East. Germany soon became a colonial power in Africa, and the government, uh, led by Kaiser Wilhelm II and dominated by the Juncker nobility, saw the outbreak of war in July 1914 as a chance to settle the German Empire's disputes with other European powers, and to check the rise of the Social Democratic Party, which had been highly critical of the Kaiser in the years leading up to the war. However, the SDP abandoned its internationalist principles to support the conflict, for which the country was quite badly prepared. The German economy was reliant on imports of food and raw materials, and the British naval blockade, combined with poor harvests, led to rationing and then malnutrition, which caused around 474,000 civilian deaths between 1914 and 1919. On the Western Front, the German military were preoccupied with the Battle of Verdun, which was intended to pin back the French and bleed their resources. Around 143,000 German troops died there. The Allies opened another front at the Somme in July 1916, The Germans famously won an overwhelming victory on the first day of the battle, but it dragged on for months, resulting in around 12,000 German deaths, many more casualties and an inconclusive result, but nonetheless became the point at which the war turned in the Allies' favour. In January 1917, the Social Democratic Party expelled its growing left-wing anti-war faction as public enthusiasm for the war faded, given the huge number of casualties and the worsening conditions for the population at home. Uh, despite the horrors of the Battle of Ypres or Passchendaele in autumn 1917, where mustard gas was used for the first time, morale improved at the end of the year with victories against Serbia, Italy, Greece and Russia in the wake of the October Revolution, and with General Ludendorff's announcement of the peace offensive on the Western Front. Uh, Ludendorff and uh, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg hoped to win there with a decisive strike before American troops entered the war. Uh, This offensive failed, the German army overreached itself, the Western Front opened up, the British counterattacked, and in September 1918, American soldiers started to arrive at a rate of 10,000 a day. So the 100 days offensive ended in German retreat and surrender before the armistice on the 11th of November 1918. A week before this, the Kiel mutiny had begun, uh, when sailors demonstrated against the continuation of the war, they went on strike, demanding the release of political prisoners, freedom of the press, and greater power to the newly established Soldiers' Council. Uh, this led to the abdication of the Kaiser, uh, the SPD leader Friedrich Ebert's declaration of the Weimar Republic, and the Spartacist uprising of January 1919, when the army and the, uh, the nationalist militias, the Freikorps, crushed the attempted communist revolution, killing several of their leaders, including Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. It later emerged that Ebert and the SPD 
SPD had colluded with the nationalist militias to put down the workers' revolt. And it was this trauma, as much as the war itself, that really shaped the culture of the post-war republic. The Treaty of Versailles, uh, signed later in 1919, uh, gave the treaties, uh, territories of Alsace and Lorraine back to France after Germany had taken them in the Franco-Prussian War. It redistributed German colonial gains in Africa to other European imperial powers, and it made Germany admit their guilt uh, for instigating the war, which was equally important and we'll come back to towards the the end of the show. So I'd like to start off by just talking a bit about um, German culture immediately before the war in the sort of opening 10 to 15 years of the 20th century. Um, German modernism was particularly interested in the the city, both Berlin and Vienna experienced kind of sudden and rapid growth in the late 19th century um, and a huge rise of a kind of urban working class. Uh, the population of Berlin doubled from half a million in 1860 to over a million in 1880 and it was up to two million by 1910 um so there was a uh, rapid rapid growth of berlin in particular which started to really rival and then overtake vienna as a cultural center for german german language speakers um tom i'd like to bring you back in here um because i think it's interesting to talk about the fact that most of the key thinkers of modernity and modernist culture were German, of course, Karl Marx, uh, Sigmund Freud, and I think most notably for our conversation today, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about Nietzsche and you know his reaction against traditional values, uh, the birth of the idea of the culture critic, and uh, Nietzsche's influence on early sociology, and particularly Nietzsche's response to the Franco-Prussian War. So Nietzsche was relatively unknown during his lifetime, as is well known now, um, and spent the last 10 years of his life in a virtual vegetative state. And it was during that period that he first came to prominence, but his works were being filtered through his uh, sister, who acted as his interpreter, and she was a reactionary and later a Nazi. So Nietzsche was very influential on right-wing politics and was seen as such by the opponents of Germany. But at the end of the 19th century, he also had a big impact on the left, indeed, everywhere. Um, and part of that impact came from his early rejection of what he saw as the stultifying bourgeois quality of 19th century culture. Um, and... For him, a, a really pivotal moment was his experience in the Franco-Prussian War because he'd been filled with enthusiasm for it. He, uh, Everyone knows he was a big fan of Wagner when he was younger and was influenced by Wagner's nationalism. And so he went to the war as a stretcher-bearer and was immediately disgusted by what he found there, by the nationalism and its real effects and by anti-Semitism, although you'd hardly know it from the way he was used later on. And Nietzsche's um, cultural criticism uh, started a long tradition in German writing that can be traced throughout the 20th century. He also had, as he said, a big influence on German sociologists, people like Zimmel, um, who gave his very famous lecture in 1903 on the metropolis and mental life. And that really sort of summarises how people experience modernity in the German-speaking countries as an overwhelming barrage of sensory stimuli. And um, Zimmel also wrote about fashion and other kind of fairly off-the-wall topics for a sociologist, although the, the uh, discipline was fairly new. And then, of course, you get people like Weber talking about the demystification of culture which is an enormously important uh, interpretation of uh, current trends for our, for our topic today. And Ferdinand Turnes, who was also a Nietzschean in some senses, who made this critical distinction between community and society, or community and civilization. And the latter was a kind of cold uh, French um, and very modern way of relating to each other which was based on capitalist um, relations whereas he aspired for a return to the community which was hot-blooded and sort of 
based on a medievalizing ideal. So that leads us uh, nicely on to the Expressionist movement, which kind of appears in Germany um, around about the end of the first decade of the 20th century, uh, 20th century and um, is most notable, I think, in poetry, drama and painting. Um, the playwrights were really influenced by not just by Nietzsche um, and particularly some of them by a kind of left take on on Nietzsche, the idea of like individuals as a sort of regenerative force, um, you know, in a quite socialistic context. I mean, they were also sort of influenced by and reacting against um, naturalist dramatists like Gerhard Hauptmann, whose play The Weavers was performed in Berlin in 1889, um, again, had quite a kind of like left kind of anti-industrialist take to it. Um, playwrights like August Strindberg, who was Swedish, but based in Berlin, uh, Frank Vedekind, uh, who wrote um, the plays that later became Pandora's Box, the um, G.W. Pabst film with Louise Brooks, which we may come back to later. Um, and the Expressionists kind of were influenced by, but reacting against some of these writers. Uh, expressionism is quite a difficult term to pin down. I mean, you know, there was no sort of official Expressionist group as such. Uh, you know, there are no kind of manifestos from groups calling themselves Expressionists, although there are different manifestos written by artists who came under that banner um really it's you know it was kind of used at the time as a catch-all term for young artists responding to this atmosphere of uncertainty and pessimism particularly regarding technological progress um uh you know they were reacting against the kind of corrupt capitalism uh materialism and the kind of chauvinistic nationalism that you just talked about with regards to nietzsche and the franco-prussian war um, one person who did write a manifesto was uh, Casimir Edschmid, uh, who wrote a manifesto called Concerning Poetic Expressionism in 1917, where he wrote that for the expressionist artist, the whole world becomes a vision. He does not observe, he envisions. He does not portray, he experiences. He does not reproduce, he creates. He does not take, he seeks. Man no longer exists as an individual tied to duty, ethics, society and family. In this art, he becomes nothing but the highest and lowest, a human being. So you can really see the influence of Nietzsche mm. in those words, I think. Uh, and you can also see it in um, Oskar Kokoschka's short play, Murderer, Hope of Women, uh, which was uh, first performed in 1909 in Vienna uh, and resulted in a riot. Um, you know, the play has this kind of Nietzschean superhero who strides across the stage, killing women who try to kind of capture and enslave him. So you can see a very right wing take on, on yeah. Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's misogyny, of course, goes without saying. Almost. Absolutely. I think, you know, any listeners who are vaguely familiar with mm. Nietzsche will will be familiar with that strand of his thought. Um, you know, this causes Kokoschka to be expelled from the academy. Um but what sort of happens around about the same time is you get um, a springing up of expressionist journals, um, things like De Sturm and De Blauer Writer, and I wonder if you'd maybe mm. like to talk a bit more about those. Yeah, so there's this outcrop of um, expressionist painters, um, and they appear in places like Vienna. In Vienna, they grow out, I suppose you could say, of the fin de siècle, people like Kokoschka and Schiller, um, but they're all looking to France as well, to a certain extent, to the Fauves and to the post-Cubist revolution and the freedom of colour from naturalism. And then in Dresden, you have um, Die Brücke and in Munich, the Blue Rider, the Blue Rider and the Bridge. And um, one of the sort of most important texts from this period is Kandinsky's um, Concerning the Spiritual in Art. And really the, t the title uh, is very um, eloquent about what this movement meant and its reaction against materialism, as he said, in the 19th century. And this, for Kandinsky, is a way into abstraction. And for him, it's an expression of interior moods, feelings, and essences. So Die Brücke, the brook, uh, or the bridge in Dresden, is founded in 1905 by a group of architecture students, actually, including Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, 
who's studying architecture at the time and later goes on to become a very prominent expressionist painter. And one of the problems that they were seeking to deal with was, in a way, quite a practical one. It was the problems faced by young, um, innovative artists coming up against the end of the Wilhelmine art market and all of the fusty art institutions that were related, that were tied to the state. How to make money, basically. Um, and they come together as a collective and they put on exhibitions together and they find uh, patrons together and they do publish a manifesto in 1906 and tellingly it's in the form of a woodcut designed by Kirchner um, which in, calls together all youth against old established forces so you've got the woodcut that very Germanic medieval medium calling for a kind of revolution of youth. And that's one of the problems when we look at expressionism is trying to understand what revolution really meant to a lot of these people. And often it really was an inchoate uh, kind of youth quake, you could say. Um, <laughs> and they take that from Nietzsche, that kind of vitalism, the, the assertion of life against the forces of the old. There aren't really any class politics there. Yeah, I think that's that's true of the first wave of the expressionist dramatists as well. Um, one of the most notable of the of that wave of, of dramas is uh, a play called *The Sun* by dramatist Walter Hassenclaver, which was first performed in 1912. Um, this generational uprising is a key theme in in that play. Uh, there's another expressionist playwright, Arnold Bronnen, who writes a play called *Vatermord*, um, literally "Father Death." Um, so that, like you say, that um, that kind of youth rebellion is is very important. Um, in, indeed, the characters in The Sun um, by Hassan Claver form this League of the Young against the world. Um, so that gives you some idea of their their politics. But um, you know what's interesting is some of the older uh, expressionist writers um, who were sort of established by 1910 or so. They they become interested in this kind of youth rebellion and they also publish alongside younger younger writers. So a couple of the older playwrights, Georg Kaiser, a Swiss writer, uh, Swiss German, and Karl Sternheim, they um they publish in these new journals like Die Aktion, Action, Der Sturm, um, Neue Jugend, and uh, one called Revolution, uh, which is founded in 1910. Yeah, and Revolution is quite unusual in some senses, although Der Action as well was quite political compared to Der Sturm, which was very intentionally apolitical. But Revolution, the magazine Revolution, took that even further. It was founded by Hugo Ball, who's a figure that perhaps our listeners will be familiar with in a different context, because of course he goes on to found Dada. Um, and it was an anarchist expressionist magazine. Um, yeah, and um, you know Hugo Ball obviously is an interesting figure to mark the transition um, from peacetime to wartime. Um, the most um, prominent, I think, um, expressionist poet, uh, Georg Heim, uh, dies aged 24 in a skating accident in 1912. And the expressionist movement, um, if you can call it that, already sort of starts to feel like it's... Um, failing in whatever revolutionary goals it's had by by the start of the war um none of the less none nevertheless um some of the artists uh, are interested in world war one you know because they see it as an apocalyptic break with 19th century society that they have been looking for um you know the painter otto dix who isn't really an expressionist but um you know i think shares some of their kind of uh, revolutionary sympathies uh, signs up for the war quite early on um, as does George Grosch who we'll come back to later um, but you know the reasons behind the war are as unclear in Germany as they are in the UK I think um, and so I want to lead on now to talk about a movement that comes specifically out of the war partly in reaction against the expressionists because these artists felt that the expressionists had failed in whatever their revolutionary goals were and um, that's the Dardarists so I wonder if we could um, talk about the Dardarists 
you know, starting off in Zurich in, I think, 1916. Yeah, that's when um, Cabaret Voltaire is founded by a group of exiles from Europe, people who'd gone there to escape from being signed up or if they were women to escape from the equally terrifying effects of the war. You get people like Hugo Ball, who I've already mentioned, coming from Munich, and with him came his partner, Emmy Hennings, really fascinating character who was a cabaret artiste, um, sex worker, and had been imprisoned for falsifying passports, I think. Um, And then from Romania, you get Tristan Zara and Marcel Janko, who were very young um, and were involved in symbolist kind of art circles in in Romania. And they come together and form Cabaret Voltaire, um, which, as the name suggests, was a performing arts venue. And Emmy Hennings was, gave famous performances, singing conventional songs that she sort of twisted the lyrics to. And then there were what they called African dances and African chants, um, the relationship of both expressionism and dadaism to primitivism is obviously a very complicated and problematic one. Um, It happens at a time when Germany has been establishing some colonial territories in in Africa as well. There are expressionist painters who are in those colonies, like Pechstein. Um, But going back to dada, uh, they are generally, although very various in terms of the work they produce and their political views. The thing that unites them is their opposition to the war and the forces that they see him as being see as being both complicit in that and culpable. So that's politicians, but also cultural figures, other art movements, and indeed art itself. So Hugo Ball's nonsense poetry is meant to take bourgeois poetry and even the possibility of bourgeois discourse apart and fragment it and destroy it yeah i mean i want to just briefly um talk about dada theory and politics um there's an interesting interview with richard holsenbeck one of the dadaists i think made in uh, 1959 so reflecting on the the movement kind of more than 40 years later where he he insists that dada had no theory um this is contestable they definitely have plenty of manifestos uh but yeah, as you say, there's a general revolt against the war and against the idea of reason and against kind of art itself. Um, I'm just going to quote briefly from um, one of Tristan Zara's manifestos from 1918, translated by Barbara Wright, in which Zara says, I'm writing this manifesto to show that you can perform contrary actions at the same time in one single fresh breath. I am against action. As for contrary continual contradiction and affirmation too i am neither for nor against them and i won't explain myself because i hate common sense um which is you know it's quite quite amusing but it points to um a couple of interesting things i think you know dada has some parallels with the destructive elements of the italian futurist movement but of course the italian futurist movement um you know it's quite obviously kind of proto-fascist and of course um some of some of the artists you know some of the futurists are killed in the first world war but the ones that survive um you know tend to express some sympathy with mussolini after the early 1920s um you know the russian futurist movement becomes very bound up with um the october revolution and with the bolshevik government um the dadaists you know are harder to um to pin down to an ideology or a political program but maybe we could just talk about some of the um the contradictions um in their their sort of political statements and politicized works yeah one thing that strikes me now is that people members of the dada groupings who survived the war and then reflected on it afterwards were often doing so in the context of the cold war so later on you get people like gross and Helsenbeck, maybe obfuscating or downplaying some of the political goals or positions that they might have taken at the time. But nevertheless, it certainly was a very contradictory collection of people. And as in all art movements, that gets manifested in infighting and excommunications. And one of the other interesting and innovative things about Dada is that it's it's very geographically dispersed as well. So you get Zurich Dada, which is not especially political and you get people attached to it or not party political in any case and there are people involved in it who are 
extremely come across as extremely nihilistic sometimes like Zara and Bal but then there are also people like Jean or Hands Up as he briefly called himself and Sophie Teuber who were producing very interesting abstract sculptures and uh, dolls in Teuber's case so there's an element of construction there as well it's not just provocations um, and then Later on, slightly later, Welsenbeck goes to uh, Berlin from Zurich in 1917. And uh, a group of artists, which were already familiar with each other, had sometimes been on the sidelines of the Expressionist movement, come together there as the Berlin Dada group. And Welsenbeck gives his first manifesto in 19, where he says, um, under the pretext of turning inward, the expressionists in literature and painting have banded together into a generation which even now is longingly expecting its historical validation and is campaigning for honourable bourgeois recognition. So that's 1918, and for some people, expressionism, as you say, had evidently failed, um, had been wishy-washy in its political aims and had uh, now completely acquiesced to the bourgeois art market. And in Berlin, you do get some very interesting political things happening. Uh, Raoul Hausmann and Hannah Hook um, claim to invent photomontage. Um, obviously, we'd already had collage with the um, cubists, but this is quite new because we're bringing together images from the popular press and arranging them as an actual relatively coherent picture sometimes less coherent and then you get that dadaist attempt to destroy the surface of the image again and you get people like john hartfield who's doing intensely left-wing political photo montages yeah uh, i mean hartfield is an interesting figure i think he is and remains the most kind of committed and engaged left-wing artist to come out of this this movement um you know, he ends up working with um, Kurt Tucholsky, who's a kind of satirical journalist and writer who's got some interest in those kind of cabaret movements that spring up in the Weimar Republic. And, you know, Tucholsky and Hartfield together produce a book called um, Germany, Germany. Um, Which is a bitter critique of absolutely. the Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and Hartfield and, continues <clears throat> to do these uh, photomontage covers for um, AIZ, the uh, Workers' Illustrated magazine, throughout the Weimar period. And even after the rise of the Nazis, he continues to produce them from exile, in exile in Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly he remains a lot more committed to socialism or communism than some of the other Dada artists. Um, obviously, the complicity of Friedrich Hebert with um, the crushing of the Spartacist revolution um, is real, uh, you know, betrayal for a lot of, of a lot of these artists and writers that we're talking about today. Um, there's a George Grosch uh, drawing called Cheers Nosca, the proletariat has been disarmed from 1919, which shows a kind of really horrifically ugly um, soldier kind of raising a glass uh, while surrounded by dead bodies of um, of people in the communist uprising. Uh, I mean, Grosch didn't stick with um, Marxism for long. Uh, Grosch and I think Otto Dix and some of the others joined the KPD in 1921. Hartfield certainly Hartfield does. Hartfield does. Um, Otto Dix uh, is asked, to, you know, it's suggested that he joined the KPD. Um, and Dick says, how much are the Jews? And he's told, I think, five marks a month or something. And Dick says that for that, I'd rather just go to a whorehouse. That's his his response to the prospect of joining the KPD. Um, Grosch joins, goes to the Soviet Union, sees Lenin speak and comes back comparing Lenin to an old apothecary who just prescribes the same medication for all illnesses. And he writes a letter to um, Bertolt Brecht and Hans Eisler, who I think we're going to come back to in a minute. Um basically saying that you know to marxists the world is completely flat and grosch ends up ends up becoming um quite anti-marxist and quite disillusioned with um with left-wing politics more generally and you know this this experience really kind of affirms his extreme individualism uh which can you know is there's clues to that even in the name cabaret voltaire because you know hugo Bal chooses that name when he's at the most extreme end of his own 
own liberalism. And um, then he ends up becoming a. He goes back to Catholicism um, and just retreats to the countryside with Emmy Hennings. And yeah, and I, I think you um, you can tell us a little bit more about the kind of symbolic end of Dada. Well, in term in visual terms, um, it's it's complex, uh, as as I guess we've uh, suggested, because as well as the people in Zurich, some of whom are doing pure abstraction um, and uh, nonsense poetry and um, provocative performances, you have the people in Berlin doing photo montages. You have the first. Dada, they don't call it an exhibition, they call it a messa, like a trade fair, which in itself is a provocation, um, at which they exhibit placards saying, art is dead, long live Tatlin. Um, So the influence of Russia is already coming through there. Um, And there's a a, a sort of stuffed effigy of a general hanging from the ceiling. Doesn't go down very well at the time, as I'm sure you can imagine. the photo montages, as I mentioned. And then you also get um, people associated with Dada in Cologne, like Max Ernst, who's really not that political at all, although their first Dada exhibition in Cologne is also extremely um, controversial and gets shut down by the police, I think. And in Hanover as well, you have Kurt Schwitters making his collages and um, also his physical assemblages. He does... He... uh, he calls his art Mertz, which is possibly a kind of homonym for um, excrement, Merd, or it could be an abbreviation of Commerz, like Commerz Bank. So it's an interesting play on commercial culture. Yeah, and they, they end up going on a kind of a tour, don't they? Um, yes, yeah, so what happens to Dada in the end is that, I mean, this has been proven over and over again with avant-garde tactics. They uh, shocked tactics have a sort of short shelf life and even in the Weimar Republic um, the Dadas were were picked up by essentially a theatrical impresario and taken on tour around Germany and uh, their nonsense poetry and and provocations attracted big crowds they made money from it and uh, in some ways that could be seen as a as a failure, as the, as the death of Dada, but also a lot of people from that group ended up becoming involved in kind of international constructivism. And for some people, Dada had been a necessary clearing of the decks and, and preparation of the ground for new construction. Well, yeah, interesting things happen, obviously, after the war and after the um, failure of the Spartacist uprising, uh, you know, the deaths of, uh, you know, Friedrich Ebert is quite lenient on the Freikorps. Um, you know, it emerges that he's had a secret phone line with them. Um, this comes out in the mid-1920s. Ebert dies in, I think, 1925. Um, you know, the deaths of Karl Liebknecht, Rosa Luxemburg, and another of the left-wing leaders, Kurt Eisner, go unpunished. Um, the Republic, uh, the Liberal Republic, gets only grudging support from Thomas Mann and Gerhard Hauptmann, who are quite old figures by this time. Um, there are right-wing putsches, uh, General Cap and uh, General Cap, and of course Hitler's Beerhaller putsch in 1923. Uh, the right-wing leaders are treated much more leniently than the left-wing ones, uh, and there's the hyperinflationary crisis of the early 1920s. So there's a sense of the republic being in constant crisis. Um, and at this point, I want to bring the expressionists back in because the expressionist movement, particularly in drama, less so in painting. Um, you know, the right-wing elements drop out at this point and it becomes a much more kind of explicitly leftist uh, artistic culture, I think. Uh, you know, some of the expressionists have died in the First World War. The uh, dramatist August Stram, who's also a poet, um, the artist August Macker and Franz Marc, uh, others have been deeply kind of affected. Um, several of them, Kirchner, Grosch, uh, Max Beckman, have breakdowns. Oskar Kokoschka is shell-shocked. Um, the artist Kata Kolvitz loses her son. Um, and so, you know, the war kind of affirms a lot of the left expressionists' view of technological progress and um, mechanization, affirms their negative view of it. Um, I think one of the most interesting writers to respond to this is uh, is Georg Kaiser, who I've mentioned already. Um, 
his play, which I think is the greatest of the expressionist dramas uh, from Morning to Midnight from Morgan's Bismissen Acts, is first performed in 1916. Um, like a lot of Kaiser's plays, the characters don't have names. So the central character is just called the cashier. Uh, and in this play, the cashier you know, works in a bank. He embezzles 60,000 marks when he's alerted to the possibility of money. And he goes from the small town of W, which is Weimar, to the big city of B, Berlin. Um, where he tries to sort of buy satisfaction in sport, sex and religion and it fails and he finds that individual transformation is impossible in an unrevolutionised society. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of death of this expressionist theme of individual regeneration. Uh, it has these kind of long ecstatic monologues which add to this sense of kind of frustrated euphoria. Um, and it's a really, really fascinating piece of work. Um, his gas trilogy that follows on from that is about four generations of this billionaire's family that covers sort of 60 years either side of the 20th century um, and look at kind of inequality, the military suppressing strikes uh, and the billionaire's son's attempts to persuade the father to be more socially responsible, which feels like a kind of evolution of the kind of patriarchal, parricidal um, kind of character of pre-war expressionist drama. Um, there's a big explosion in the first gas play, which is the second part of the trilogy. The first part's called The Coral, um, as a metaphor for the First World War. And the second part of the gas, the third part of the gas trilogy, Gas 2, uh, is performed in 1920. It's written during the war. And in Act 2 of Gas 2, the workers kind of refuse to produce any longer. Um, and they call for peace, which is very obviously modelled on the Bolshevik um, withdrawal from the war and the Brest-Litovsk Treaty that um, confirms that. And the final act of Gas 2 kind of anticipates another conflict springing out of the refusal to end this one peacefully um, and fairly, um, which proves to be quite kind of prescient. Um, you know, Kaiser's kind of denkspiel, his plays of ideas, you know, don't look for a synthesis between these ideas. They show the ideas being pitted against each other until one of them is vanquished, um, which, again, I think is something that anticipates... Um, you know the coming of Nazism, and mm. um, but we'll we'll talk about that towards the end of the show. And it's interesting. The antagonistic element is still not influenced by class politics at all. It's still ideas or uh, generational to a degree. I mean, there's so, there's some of that in Kaiser, um, particularly in in the gas plays, mm. but there's more in uh, Ernst Toller's plays. Right. Um, Ernst Toller is a particularly interesting figure here. He's the last expressionist playwright to emerge. Really, he's a, he kind of starts off as a as a poet, and he's from like a uh, a wealthy Prussian Jewish family, um, and he deals with like anti-Semitism from all sides. He's um, he's quite enthusiastic about the war initially. He signs up wanting to kind of prove his German patriotism, and he's horrified by what he sees. He becomes a committed pacifist. He joins strikes against munitions factories in Munich. Uh, and then he becomes involved with the, um, he supports the Kiel mutiny, and then he becomes involved with the Spartacist uprising. Um, well, not the Spartacist uprising, but the uprising in Munich. He um, he spends six days as president of the Bavarian Soviet Republic in early 1919. The communists quite quickly push him aside, but they make him a Red Army commander. Um Toller has to decide whether or not to kill some political prisoners. He decides not to. He releases them. Um, they go on to kind of kill some of his comrades, um, uh, including Toller's successor as head of the Bavarian Soviet Republic, Eugen Levinay. Um, and Toller is sent to prison. He's convicted of high treason. He's given five years, which is the minimum sentence, um, after Thomas Mann and Max Weber speak in his favour. Um He's actually offered an amnesty after a year, but he refuses it on the grounds that he doesn't want to be set free while his kind of comrades are, are not. Mm. Uh, just because he's become a successful playwright, he writes a play called uh, Massa Mensch, Massa's a Man, in which a woman called Sonia, a kind of communist revolutionary, um, you know, agonizes over some of the decisions that Toller had had to make about, you know, mercy for political prisoners. Um, and Toller's point in Massa Mensch is that all political action is kind of bound up with guilt. Um, and Toller is actually on hunger strike in prison when that's first performed at the Volksbühne in 1920 to quite a good reception. Um, I think Toller in some ways becomes the emblematic playwright of the 1920s in, in Germany. He, um, he also he writes another play, the first play of his to be performed after his release. It's called Hoppla, Wir Leben, Hoppla, We're Alive. Um, and it borrows a line from Eugen Levenay, 
um, when they're in prison. Levinay, the character based on Levinay says, we communists are all dead men on leave. Um, and the play ends up with quite a pessimistic take on the possibility of revolution. One of Carl Thomas, the central character, one of his former comrades is called, quite unsubtly, is called Killman. And uh, Killman uh, is a former revolutionary who has become Minister of the Interior and basically uses his position to really kind of shut the door on left-wing um, attempts to reform or revolutionise the the Republic. Um, and the play has a very pessimistic ending. Um, expressionism itself kind of burns itself out here in drama. Um, the Golden Age sort of ends around about the time that Hoplar is first performed in the mid-twenties. Uh, and certain devices from expressionist films start coming into mm. um start coming into expressionist plays hoplar has uh some film sequences and the theater director Irvin piscator uh works on the production helps to shape the the script yeah. um maybe we should talk a little bit about the expressionist films um well, maybe we could pop over to painters briefly before we come back to film because that sure. sort of uh film sort of rounds off the expressionist period in some ways but the expressionist painters haven't all vanished and although not unlike toller they're not struggling with real questions of life and death in this period they're still trying to figure out how to react to the revolution and the uh, the end of the war and you get groups like the november group uh, being established in 1918, named after the November Revolution, and the Arbeitsrat für Kunst being established in 1919, that's the Workers' Council for Art, and their names are both influenced by revolutionary ideas. Um, but in the end, neither of them turn out to be all that revolutionary themselves. The November group uh, is a, a collection of quite disparate people, um, expressionists, but also uh, Cubists, Futurists, even a couple of Dadaists are in there too. And they continue until right to the end of the Weimar Republic, by which point it's just become an exhibition club, essentially. The Arbeitsrat for, Arbeitsrat for Kunst, the Workers' Council for Art, starts off with some slightly more revolutionary aims. It publishes manifestos, um, but what they're really interested in is how to revolutionise the institutions of art to deal with the question of what art should do in a revolutionary society. And one of the answers that they come up with to that is that artists, advanced artists, in other words themselves, should be in charge of the museums and art schools. It seems fairly straightforward, but they are limiting themselves practically to matters that they can actually, could possibly influence and it, again, with the Arbeitsrat, you have a fairly disparate group of people, not just expressionists, but also slightly older, socially concerned artists like Keta Kolwitz, who we've mentioned before. And she's um, radicalized by the war. She, she publishes her very famous print on the death of Liebknecht in 1920 um, and becomes a communist. And there are also young architects like Walter Gropius, who ends up becoming head of the Bauhaus. And Bruno Taut, and Taut's a very interesting character in Expressionism. Um, he'd been uh, very opposed to the war, uh, a pacifist and a socialist and an internationalist, and he um, publishes a couple of sort of utopian books, one in 1919 called The, the Stadtkrone, The City Crown, in which he proposes this kind of incredibly multicolored crystalline architecture to be built in cities but also he proposed it for the top of alpine mountains and the idea is that people of all lands will come together to build this stuff and be united by architecture um the only thing that he really builds like that is before the war actually called the glass pavilion and it's sponsored by a glass manufacturer the cologne uh workbund exhibition so these both of these groups um sort of peter out in terms of their revolutionary ambition uh the Arbeitsrat is over by 21 yeah you're um you're listening to suite 212 here on resonance 104.4 fm and i'm talking to 
Tom Wilkinson about the cultural impact of the First World War in Germany. We've got just over 15 minutes left. Um, I want to talk very, very briefly. Um, you know, it's a real shame to have to skate over this topic because it's worthy of a show in itself. And the, you know, the expressionist movement in film. Um, I think we should just talk very briefly about the film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, because it's, you know, this sort of emblematic expressionistic film. Of course, it's about a um, a sort of circus act that turns up in a kind of German town, which consists of a, um, a somnambulist, you know, a sleepwalker, um, and this Dr. Caligari who's with him, and the, um, the somnambulist, you know, kind of keeps murdering people in his sleep, and the sets of the film are very kind of interesting. Um, there's a you know a famous um, summary of German film in this period written by Siegfried Krakauer, who is part of the Frankfurt School, I think. Um, and I want Tom, if you could just talk for a moment about um, Krakauer's take on Caligari and Nazism. Yeah, well, Krakauer is a great um, film critic, and he was a film critic for Frankfurt uh, Zeitung at, at the time. Um, but after the war, he escaped to Manhattan and uh, was being funded by. Um, not the Ford Foundation, but one of those big foundations, to write this book on German film, and he titled it From Caligari to Hitler. And that really sums up the thesis uh, fairly briefly. He thought that expressionist film presaged, or even to a degree influenced, the German people in their susceptibility towards dictatorship. And in Caligari but also in other expressionist films like the Dr. Mabuse cycle, um, you get these characters who are have sinister powers over the masses. They have kind of hyp hypnotic power, um, and this is obviously influenced by uh, interest in the psyche and the subconscious of the day. And these... Um, powers are kind of reflected in the design of the films themselves you get these incredible sets uh very unnaturalistic um designed in the case of caligari i think by someone who was also an architect of um, cafes in berlin i think one of the blauer writer group was involved as well yeah um and there's this ambivalence in the film about caligari um is he a dictator or yeah the expressionist kind of writers were very kind of confused about how to how to respond to Caligari certainly um we're gonna have to just move the discussion on now we're gonna spend a couple of minutes uh, only on um you know the brief period of economic stability in the Weimar Republic from sort of 1925 to 29 um, the German Chancellor Gustav Stresemann, who dies suddenly in 1929, kind of stabilises the economy. Um, and you get the emergence of this Neue Sacklichkeit movement, uh, which sort of looks at itself as being an objective view of Weimar society, a sign of the stabilisation of the Republic itself. Yeah, and so we've just come through the hyperinflationary period and all of the Ruhr crises and the invasion of the French and, and things like that and pop out the other side into relative stability. Although, of course, everyone's horrifically traumatised still by the war experiences and, and the birth of the, the violent birth of the Republic. Um, and the first um, public use of the term Neue Sacklichkeit, which means new objectivity or new sobriety, comes in 1925 with an exhibition put together by Gustav Hartlaub, the director of a museum in Mannheim. Um, and that brings together a lot of paintings, um, but Neuzaklikite can be understood as existing in different media as well and preceding this exhibition by some years. Um, and to an extent, it's a reaction against expressionism. And for a lot of people, it's also an extension of Dadaist ideas. So you have George Gross and Otto Dix, uh, are kind of the preeminent painters that we associate with Neuzaklikite today. And although they take this more objective, cooler view of Weimar society, you still get the figure of the war cripple popping up in their images all the time. And you also get some pretty extreme violent imagery. Sex murder is a recurrent trope, um, and there's plenty to be said. We don't really have time 
to now, but about the impact of the war and the return of traumatized men on uh, sex relations in Weimar society, and that's represented in painting and writing. Yeah, I mean, the Dadaists also kind of gave their support to Magnus Hirschfeld, who was sort of calling for, like, paragraph 175, which outlawed homosexuality, to be abandoned. Uh, some of the Neusaklichkeit painters, like such as Christian Schad, for example, you know, take a real interest in this kind of proto-transgender culture that emerges in, in Berlin. Um, and yeah, I think that's absolutely an interesting kind of aspect. Um, I mean, we should talk very, very quickly about a few kind of um, works of the written word that emerge. Obviously, Brecht emerges as a kind of really important playwright at this point. Um, his first play, Baal, which he writes when he's 22, um, which comes out um, in the early 20s, um, is a kind of brutal satire of the expressionist poets and writers and kind of, you know, contributes to the outflanking of um, Ernst Toller in particular by Brecht as the preeminent kind of left playwright in Germany, especially when the Three Penny Opera um, becomes this kind of surprise hit. Um, it's then adapted by Pabst for the cinema, but a lot of the politics are kind of toned down and Brecht is furious with this and kind of leaves the production. Um you know, there's a couple of very interesting novels that I think anticipate what happens next. Uh, one of them is Alfred Doblin's Berlin Alexanderplatz, which comes out in 1928. Uh, and this follows a man called Franz Bibikoff, who's released from prison at the start of the novel. It's a really epic novel and basically tries to sort of escape the criminal underworld, but just finds that he can't. And this is, of course, you know, a metaphor for the kind of corruption of Weimar society as a whole. Um some of our listeners may know the Reign of Werner Fassbinder adaptation from 1980, which uses hindsight to sort of, you know, really show how that novel sort of anticipates the Nazis imposing this criminal society um, over the collapse of the Weimar Republic. And Bieberkopf is really a kind of emblem or figurehead of this period in that he's sort of buffeted between political factions, but is remains essentially apolitical and venal um, and, you know, he's, he loses his arm, but it's not at the front. It's whilst trying to rob a warehouse. Um, there's also, um, in in architecture as well, a reaction against expressionism and, and the Bauhaus, which we haven't had a chance to talk about, unfortunately, begins, well, it started before, but when Gropius joins, he issues the Bauhaus Manifesto in 1919, which has a cathedral woodcut on the cover, and it's full of enthusiasm for community coming together and building great works. And then by 1921, the influence of international constructivism has completely toned down the rhetoric, and instead you get uh, the Bauhaus, as we sort of remember it now, of the new building and, and plain unadorned structures that are adequate to the stabilisation period for a kind of Americanism. Yeah, and you also get one other novel that I'd like to just briefly mention. It's quite a famous novel, which is Eric Maria Remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front, which, of course, is adapted for a film in America in 1930s. So it's an interesting example of this German anti-war film uh, talking about the experience of the Axis powers being adapted by, you know, a country that was on the other side. Um, and, you know... All Quiet on the Western Front can be seen in dialogue with Ernst Jünger's uh, 1920 novel Storm of Steel, which is kind of often read as a glorification of the war. And that kind of feeds into these kind of culture wars, um, particularly about how the war is recorded and remembered and represented uh, that kind of happened throughout the 1920s and kind of, you know, feed into the Nazi, the rise of the Nazi party during the 20s and early 30s. Absolutely. And whereas for Remark you get this kind of almost classical liberal humanist reaction to the experience of war, from Jünger's position, and he was a highly decorated war hero and a reactionary, um, you get a much more modernist approach to it. And for him, the war remakes people with a kind of armoured psyche. And uh, that's his rather terrifying and brutal utopian view that society should be remade in the image of war. Um, it, and Jünger's ideas were pernicious at the time, but he he didn't become a Nazi in the end, or not for a long time, because he saw them as um, inadequate. <laughs> 
um, and was defended after the war by no lesser figure than Brecht, actually. Um, other things that happened from the, the right's perspective, Junger also was involved in publishing photo books. He published a series of photo books, um, one of them titled The Dangerous Moment in the early 30s. Um, so you get this reaction against the left from some people on the right, like, for instance, um, Paul Schultz of Naumburg, who was an architect and deeply opposed to the Bauhaus and to modern architecture and wanted to go back to a more vernacular style of building. He'd actually designed the last palace for the Hohenzollern dynasty in Potsdam, which is a really ludicrous building. I saw it, I'd never seen it before, I saw it this summer, and it's like a stockbroker Tudor mansion, but blown up to really gargantuan proportions. And then, so you get these kind of reactionaries who we'd understand, and who have their analogues today, of course. But then you also get other, um, reactionary modernists strangely working at the same time yeah absolutely um and the relationship of modernism to the nazi party obviously once they seize power in 1933 or once they're elected in 1933 um you know it's quite interesting um you know fritz lang's film m comes out in 1931 um and this is all about like a child murderer terrorizing a city who is then um basically his actions and the police clampdown make it hard for the kind of criminal underworld to operate so they kind of put they catch the murderer themselves and instigate this kind of kangaroo court um and you know um both metropolis and this film i think um you know politically quite ambiguous and uh, goebbels who um you know um administers the reich culture chamber in 1933 uh, in september that year set up um, you know, he he sounds out Fritz Lang about becoming the Nazis kind of main filmmaker. And, um, you know, Fritz Lang says to Goebbels, like my, you know, I have family who are Jewish. And Goebbels apparently says to him, like, you know, we'll decide who's Jewish. Uh, Fritz Lang leaves the country the next day. A lot of other people leave. Yeah, um, uh, that, there is some debate about whether Fritz Lang really did leave the country the very next day. Um, he might have hung around a little bit longer, like, quite a few other people uh yeah. for instance uh, Mies van der Rohe the the, bow, who, the head of the Bauhaus attempted to get work from the Nazis before finally realizing that the game mm. was up and heading to the states yeah and even like Hannah Hock the Dadaist artist like stays stays in Germany during the war Christian Schad stays for example so some people do stay um Ernst Toller leaves immediately you know as like a Jewish communist writer he's pretty much top of the Nazis list of people to get so he goes he goes immediately george Grosch leaves quite soon some of the bauhaus group everyone leave. who'd been included in the degenerate art exhibition um, yeah which we're going to talk about now i mean obviously the nazi book burning starts in 1933 um george Grosch actually writes to his friend walter mehring and says that he agrees in principle with the book burning you know there are some parallels with the you know most extreme end of the dadaist anti-art um sentiment um, and Grosch, you know, sort of condemns his own drawings as pseudo art. Um, and, uh, you know, also says, look, if the German Communist Party had won, like in 1919, then he says that the world would be resounding with even more hateful propaganda. Only the emphasis on racial hatred would have shifted to a class hatred that is just as ugly and bloodthirsty. Um, so, you know, Grosch was really very, very critical of, you know, his own work and the work of some of the people who've been around him. Um, you know, some artists and writers sided with the Nazis, most of them quite briefly, people like Gottfried Benn, the expressionist poet and playwright, uh, and Arnold Bronnen, who I mentioned earlier, um, and the expressionist artist Emil Nolder actually made a case for expressionism to become the official art of Nazism, which was quite swiftly rejected. Because it was genuinely German, that was the yeah. the argument. Um and, you know, a lot of the older Prussians hated that and modernism in general, but Goebbels kind of liked it. Um, I mean, Goebbels is interesting here because um, there's uh, the Nazis proposed this great German art exhibition in 1937 and um, 15,000 paintings and other artistic works are submitted. Um, and, you know, Goebbels has jury choices for this exhibition, so they look at these works. Um and the uh, Degenerate Art Exhibition comes out of that. And um, that really is like the symbolic 
end of um, this kind of post First World War culture. Um, we're pretty much out of time. Um, the story of the Degenerate Art Exhibition is well known. Um, I think we might have to return to it another day. So I'm just going to thank you, Tom Wilkinson, for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Julia. And we'll be back next week with a show on the uh, cultural impact of the First World War in France. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Goodbye. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.